0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, we've made it to September 2021 in our seemingly apocalyptic year. Congratulations, we're all still alive. Although in California, uh, some of us, or at least the the environment, is is burning up around Lake Tahoe. We are, of course, and this has been a perpetual theme in our show over the last 18 months as we went uh, daily since COVID. We are living in the age, I think, of uh, upheaval or instability or disruption. Uh, headlines today are about Texas and their radical rethinking, reformulation uh, of uh of uh, abortion laws, uh, the, the, the anti-vaccine movement. Uh, this is a headline from the New York Times. Apparently, this is the moment, whether it's September 1 or 2021, that the anti-vaccine movement has been waiting for. Um, the anti-vaxxers, of course, are very strong. Uh, yesterday, we had Johnny Taylor, a business writer, on the show. Uh, He has a new book out, Reset, uh, about our age of upheaval. And perhaps that's the theme, the age of upheaval. We had uh, Neil Ferguson on the show a couple of months ago. He has a new book out, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. Uh, But maybe we should be calling our age the age of catastrophe, given what's happening in California uh, everything seems up for grabs. No one is certain about anything. We had, uh, Adrian, uh, we had Adrian Waldridge on the show recently, the economist writer. He has a new book out, The Aristocracy of Talent, which is Adrian's polite defense of elites and meritocrats in our age of uh, disruption, of uncertainty. Uh, today, we have another quite historical uh, writer on the show. Um, and, uh, I'm curious, uh, what his take, uh, he has a new book out on, on a French aristocrat, a hero of two worlds who had feet in both the American and the French revolutions. Uh, but Mike Duncan is, uh, also, uh, a, a historian. Uh, he's the, um, the author of the revolutions podcast, Mike Are we living in another age of revolution, or is it an age of instability, or perhaps an age of upheaval? How would you characterize our age?
1: Well, I certainly think it's an age of something like that. Um, It's always difficult to tell, like, as a historian, is what we're living through is what anybody's living through in current events really something truly different and and a monumental break with the past or something unprecedented? Or is it just that we're simply living through times that people have lived through before and we just like that doesn't touch us because we didn't live through it? Um, and as a historian, somebody who has worked not just in sort of uh, modern revolutionary periods, but going all the way back to the Roman Empire... Uh, I have certainly seen great periods of instability and catastrophe and apocalyptic events uh, that sort of come and go. Now, if you were to ask me, you know, I grew up at sort of the end of the Cold War in the 1980s, and I moved into the 1990s, the sort of this like uh, sort of glossy eyed end of history period is what it certainly what it felt like for the first half of my life. And uh, ever since about the turn of the century, things have seemed to have gone downhill Quite fast, um, things seem very different than they did before. Uh, there is political polarization. There is a climate catastrophe that is right on top of us. Uh, we are dealing with literal plagues sweeping through uh, uh, sweeping through the world.
0: It's we good. De- day, it's, it's a good time to be a historian, Mike. It's it's a yeah, lot of fun. Yeah, it's isn't a good time. time I mean, as long as we or, don't catch the COVID or burn up, or, or burn up. Yeah, it, it, uh, as the Chinese said, this is this has become one of the great cliches. Uh, it's 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 good to live through a period of of interesting history. It could have been in the 1980s, which were really boring.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, um, but I, I would
1: say that my, my take on this is that something has changed about the way that the world functions and certainly the way that the United States of America functions politically, economically, and socially, um, that doesn't appear to be getting better. Things do appear to be getting worse uh, at a rapiding rate.
0: Well, as I said, you're the, uh, you're the host of a, a very successful podcast, Revolutions, and also uh, the author of a new book uh, about the Marquis de Lafayette, Uh, hero of two worlds, Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. I I, I do want to talk, of course, specifically about Lafayette. Um, But if Lafayette reappeared today on September 1, 2021, what do you think he'd make of our world?
1: Well, aside from the sort of uh, bewilderment that he would have at uh, all of the technology that is surrounding him if we if we set aside that he would just be able to walk into this uh and start looking around and noticing things that are happening i think that he would see a lot of familiar patterns that he saw in his own life uh when it comes to i would say the forces the forces of progress running into the forces of reaction Which is really like any, like it's called the Marquis de Lafayette in the age of revolution because uh, we tend to treat this period. And I think that this is true between, you know, like the end of the Seven Years' War, moving into like 1777, the beginning of the American Revolution, pushing through about 50 years to the 1820s and 1830s. You do have a dramatic and revolutionary transformation from. Uh, what would the old feudal regimes of Europe and the Atlantic world into something resembling like the origins of modern Republican democracy and political rights and, uh, and that stuff. But that doesn't happen just as a uniform sort of progressive movement. It doesn't happen because everybody was on board with the revolutionary program. In fact, it, it, the revolutionary program was oftentimes started by and carried through by a minority of people. And there was always a reactionary push that is going to be trying to stamp all this out, that doesn't like the move out of the way things used to be into this new world.
0: And Lafayette and is- And some that bit- reactionary, you know, Isaiah Berlin has written wonderfully about that reaction against modernization and the revolution. Burke is the hero of conservatives. Um, for you as a historian, you spent a few years in Paris researching this uh, book about Lafayette. Of course, the the great vision is for romantics. Do you still think that what you call the age of revolution um, is a romantic age, or was the reaction against it for romantics? Well, I think that there is probably
1: a mix of that, um, because certainly, you know, the one of the great romantic writers of all time, Chateaubriand, is a is a reactionary conservative who is trying to call back to earlier more idyllic periods at least in their minds at least in their imaginations um before the horrors of modernity before the horrors of the revolution were visited upon the world but at the same time like uh you know revolutionary figures uh there's a great deal of romance that is wrapped up and i think is is quite true of somebody who is going to take what they consider to be an unjust regime Uh, and try to overthrow it in the name of, you know, basic civil, basic rights that we all now take for granted, liberty and equality. Like these also are wrapped up in romantic visions of how the world ought to be and what we ought to be doing here as human beings. Right. Um, So
0: Mike, let me put you on the spot. All right. Uh, You seem like the kind of guy who likes to be put on the spot. Oh boy. Um. Where do you stand on 1789? I brought up Burke. It's probably more than any other event in human history. It divides people as to its historical significance, its morality. Where do you stand on 1789? Because it's the core of your book. Without 1789, there'd be uh, no hero of two worlds. Yeah, my so my take on this because I, I wrote a 55
1: part series covering the entirety of the French Revolution as a part of the podcast. And then I wrote this book. So I have had some opportunity to think this question through. I think that 1789 is ultimately a good and progressive thing that happened in the history of the world, right? The things that come out of that are ultimately, when you take a 10,000, you know, the 10,000 foot view, ultimately good things come out of this. The fact that the revolution had to happen at all is something of a disastrous tragedy because revolutions happen because existing political regimes and existing social systems and existing economic systems are simply not doing the job that they need to do for the people in that society. So the fact that France had to go through this that's giant, a very uh,
0: Mike that's a very Whiggish position um, isn't it I mean wow. throughout most of history the, the, the system hasn't somehow benefited the people but these systems have always existed. Sure. But there was a great deal
1: of new intellectual currents that were existing in the 18th century that were beginning to filter down into the minds of the people. And as you have more literacy and you have more education and you have uh, people beginning to look at what's happening in the world around them and saying to themselves, I mean, is this really working for me? Um, Oughtn't I be able to participate in the crafting of my own laws? I mean, I personally, you know, like if you say that that's just a Whiggish interpretation, I think that's fine independently of of being a part of any historical school. And that is ultimately what was going on. And then, but with the revolution, did they actually, like when it comes to 1789, as you move forward into 1791, 1792, 1793, and you move towards say the committee of
0: public safety. And um, then uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, of course, the the militarization of, of the revolution. Exactly, and I think that a lot of that comes from
1: mistakes that the revolutionaries themselves made in 1789. So you have a bunch of mistakes made by the ancien regime that leads to the French Revolution. Then the first generation of whom Lafayette was was a was a key member of uh, of the sort of the Revolution of 1789. They made a bunch of mistakes, and then the people who were running things in 1793 and 1794 make a bunch of mistakes, and then yeah, you wind up at this. Uh, you know, an autocratic war machine in Napoleon Bonaparte's uh, empire, being the ultimate conclusion to this uh, sort of reform movement for political reform and economic
0: reform and taxation reform that started in 1789. So, Mike, you've spent a lot of time, you, you, as he said, you you had the fortune of, of, of living in Paris a few years, doing your research on this wonderful new book. I'm sure it's going to be a bestseller. Your last book was a bestseller. Hero of Two Worlds, about Lafayette. Why is he an interesting figure in historical terms? Uh, many people are familiar with him now from the musical Hamilton. He was a romantic figure, but in historical, hard historical terms, what makes him interesting? The thing that initially
1: draws me to him, there, 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 there's a couple of things. The, the first big one is that he is a living presence through this period you know, this, this age of democratic revolution, this age of revolution that we're talking about, he comes into this picture in 1787 and 1788 as like a 19 year old who has run away from home to join George Washington and the continental army as they try to break away from the British empire. And then he is still around, um, you know, 50 years later, he's 70 years old uh involved in the overthrow of the bourbon monarchy in the he's, like the, he's
0: like the zelig of the age of revolutions is
1: he? yeah exactly he's just he's constantly around for everything and he is he is a participant in this and he and as i said like i think the stuff that comes out of this age these notions of liberty these notions of equality he believed them from quite a young age uh and kept to that whether um whether, whether events were carrying so far to the left that he was then treated as a conservative and reactionary for not going far enough, or when the Bourbons came back, he's now back to being like a, le- a liberal radical uh, because he wants a constitution for France. He sort of rides through this period. Now, he's not a Napoleon. You know, he's not a Lenin. He's not somebody who is sort of forcibly putting his stamp on events every step of the way because I think that one of the things that's appealing about him and I like about him is that he, as much as he was interacting with and affecting events, he was also carried along by events, and that events that were beyond his control. And I think that that's a very uh, sort of human place to find oneself. I certainly, you know, feel carried along by events that are that are far outside of my ability to affect anything. And I think that that's it, there's a very human element to how he rides through this period. And then, yeah, I mean, the the Age of Revolution opens basically when Lafayette shows up and closes.
0: When he dies, Uh, he rides, as you say, through history, although his impact on history is much less than uh, the most famous of all 19th century uh, French writers and thinkers on politics and the revolution. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, of course, is the author of Democracy in America. Um, uh, uh, Lafayette is interesting because, as you say, he has one foot in France and one foot in the United States didn't really leave much of a legacy in terms of his thinking about uh, American democracy and its relationship to the aristocratic systems of Europe like de Tocqueville did. Um, why not? I think that's really fair. And
1: um, you know, comparing uh, de Tocqueville to Lafayette is something that uh, is done quite often, comparing and contrasting these two figures, because both of them are, are intimately linked to America's own self-identity. We have, there, there are these two French guys and they, they knew each other actually a little bit when Tocqueville was young and Lafayette was an old man. Um, and so they, so they did cross paths there in the early 1830s. Now why, uh, why did Tocqueville seems as, as you just said, to have more of an impact at least intellectually, on America's self-conception. It certainly has a greater... It respect. seems. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, oh, in terms of... Yeah, 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 yeah. In terms of intellectual... In, in terms of our intellectual self-identity, and it's because de Tocqueville is this gifted uh, intellectual and writer uh, and theorist, and Lafayette was not. Lafayette was not any of those things. Lafayette is a very bright guy. Uh, he's a smart guy. He's not a, He's not a dummy by any standards, but he's not sitting down... And writing books of theory. He's not writing great commentaries. He doesn't keep a meticulous diary. Um, He is much more of a man of action. And he, so it's not that he is a a non entity in the historical world that he played in. And it's not that the things that he did or said ultimately don't have an impact on the United States and on France and frankly on world history. Um, But he's doing it through action, he's doing it through, uh, Uh, organizing. He's doing it through making some speeches. He's doing it through being a political actor and a soldier rather than what de Tocqueville is doing, which is traveling around making observations and producing, you know, one of the all-time great commentaries on the United States. And I think I've heard this from uh, some French historians and French writers that the reason why Lafayette's reputation, especially in France, suffers so much is because he committed the cardinal French sin of not theorizing about his experience and not turning his life and his ideas into something of a, of a philosophical or literary statement, which the French hold in great, in great high regard. And Lafayette was simply not somebody like that. So it, the impact of Lafayette versus the impact of de Tocqueville are, I would, I would argue that they were probably
0: about equal just in different ways. And probably the mistake, uh, uh Lafayette made is he should have made his life into a, a musical. Um, He's best known now as as a figure in the in the Hamilton musical. What do you make of this fetishization of Hamilton and, and Lafayette and its popularity in contemporary America? I have to admit I'm mystified by it. well, I mean you know it the Hamilton musical is certainly the
1: greatest thing to happen to Lafayette's reputation probably since he
0: died um, yeah. You know, and he of, was, of course, he's made into a black man, which is not coincidental either. Yeah. Um, I mean, what and do you it, think he would it, have it, thought of that, of, of, of suddenly reappearing on, quite literally, the American stage as an African-American singing rap music? Mm-hmm. And, what would he make of that? Because I, I'm curious, Mike, um, you know, I grew up, as you can probably tell, in England, and we were schooled in the Age of Revolution on the great text by Eric Hobsbawm, the Marxist mm-hmm. writer, or the Marxist historian, the, the giant of uh, 20th century historical writing in America, and I'm still very close to his daughter. Um, Stole that title uh, for the subtitle of my book? Exactly. Um, he, he's going to sue you. <laughs> he would if he was alive. Um, he obviously was an aristocrat, Mike. Yeah. From a Marxist point of view, from people who, who, who think of history in terms of social class, was there a contradiction to him, this aristocrat, this man of privilege who was also supposedly a man of the people who, who, who wanted to undermine the aristocratic regimes of, of, of Europe, both France and indirectly England in the, in the, French, in the American Revolution?
1: Yeah. I mean, there, there is a degree. So in, in this sort of world, like if, if you were going to do like uh, if Lafayette is around today, like what is, what does social media say about a figure like Lafayette who's going around saying and doing the things that he's saying and doing Um, you know, he's going to be accused of being just a bleeding heart liberal uh, who is using his wealth for philanthropic aims, but is not actually fundamentally changing the social system that you know is creating the larger system of injustice that everybody is living under. So and, he's like a kind of coastal liberal elite. Yeah, I would say so. And I and I and honestly, I think it's a fair cop. I mean, he was he believed in uh, he. Excuse me. He did not believe in aristocracy of the blood as something that ought to continue to define political reality for the world. Like he, he was, he was in that world, in that rarefied era of the, of the upper French aristocracy. I mean, he's, he's connected to the richest and most powerful families in France. And he was looking around at them and he was not actually that impressed by the results of, you know, generations of interbreeding that produced these people who believed that they were like practically superior creatures to the commoners in France. Uh, and Lafayette was not particularly impressed with them at all, but that never moves him to a position where equality for him means that everybody is equal and we're going to have something like like a like an anarchistic commune he believed and i think he didn't have this terminology at the time but he believed in something like the meritocracy where the best system that you could possibly have is to create you know educate everybody equally treat everybody equally legally and politically and then allow intelligent, talented, hardworking people to rise up and become the leaders of in business, become the leaders in politics, and to have them in charge of our government instead of just this old aristocracy. But as you said, the critique of this is that that still maintains a hierarchical system where some people are being rewarded with outsized political power and financial wealth, which Lafayette enjoyed both of because of his position, um, without actually attacking root and branch uh, what the problems actually were. And this is going to be, of course, a great critique that comes along later in the 19th century of everything that these liberal revolutionaries and reformers were up to in the late 18th century and 19th century.
0: And of course, Lafayette came to an America that was dominated or by, by two great crimes, the crime of slavery, uh, and perhaps even more profoundly in some ways, uh, the crime of wiping out of the original peoples of, of, mm-hmm. of North America. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, Mike, your, uh, your book got a, a very nice uh, kind of review, reference by Jamel uh, Bowie in the uh, New York Times. He's an African-American columnist. Uh, he's actually been on the show, incredibly s- a smart guy. Uh, what is it about your book and and your approach to Lafayette that might have made a contemporary uh, African-American writer and a polemicist somehow sympathetic to Lafayette?
1: Well, I think it comes partly from the fact, I mean, I know Jamel Bowie too. He's
0: just a a voracious reader of all things. Yeah, and I don't want to pigeonhole, you know I mean? I don't want to appear like a racist and say, oh, he's African-American and he only thinks about history in in terms of uh, African-American politics and and history. But uh, I I am curious as to to why your treatment of Lafayette seems to have been uh, received quite sympathetically on the left in America today. Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that I do in the book
1: is try to sort of explain who and what Lafayette was without turning it into a hagiography and without turning it into just a massive critique of everything that he did. And I think at the epicenter, sort of at the center of that is his relationship with, uh, uh, the emancipation of the slaves and abolitionism, where when Lafayette comes over and fights in the American revolution, is this like, you know, this rich French aristocrat who's, you know, kind of having a youthful adventure in America. Um, He didn't think too much about the slavery issue while he was in the Continental Army. He's, you know, he's best friends with George Washington. He becomes friends with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. These guys are all slave owners. But when he goes home to France within a couple of years by 1783, so we were even before the French Revolution here, Lafayette has this turn in his mind where he's like, well, the idea here is liberty, right? That's what we fought for. The idea here is equality. All men are created equal. That's what was in the Declaration of Independence. And if that means anything, it must mean that eventually you're going to have to free all of your slaves. We can't have African slavery anymore. This is incompatible with the ideals that we uh, that we just fought a war for. At least in his mind, because Lafayette was an idealist, and as I said, he wasn't. Um, he, he was a bright guy, but his IQ didn't break the bank. And so unlike somebody like a great genius like Jefferson, who can hold these two ideas in his head because because he's a world historical genius, uh, Lafayette could never reconcile them because he probably wasn't smart enough. Uh, How do you actually pull this off? So he starts writing letters back to Washington and Jefferson saying, you know, free your slaves. Like, how are you going to do it? What's the process going forward? Like, how is the American Revolution going to fulfill itself uh, by freeing the slaves? And this becomes... A lifelong thing for him. He's, he's an abolitionist starting in 1783, and he remains an abolitionist uh, through 1834, his death. One of the last letters that he wrote on his death, he didn't realize it was his deathbed, but when he was uh, laid up in bed with this cold, it was he was corresponding with a member of a, of a Scottish Emancipation Society who had be- solicited him for information on the early days of emancip- the Emancipation Movement because he was a part of it from a very young age. The other side of this is that his uh his his role in the abolitionist movement was profound and important but also mired or marred by failure he bought a plantation in french guyana and wound up owning himself uh, 79 slaves which he did this with the intention of proving that over time you could gradually free your slaves by paying them wages by educating them by teaching them how to run their plantation for themselves that then he would be able to free them and hand the plantation over to them to work as basically tenant farmers rather than slaves. He does this in the mid 1780s, then 1789 comes along, the French Revolution comes along and that sweeps him off in a completely different direction and he and his wife who were managing this property then never got around to freeing their slaves before Lafayette is evicted from the revolution. So those slaves that he bought and owned for many years were not freed until his the enemies of his in the French Revolution, the uh, the guys who started the first French Republic declare the Emancipation Proclamation in 1794. By this point, Lafayette's off in an Austrian prison; he had nothing to do with it. So, his relationship with the abolitionist movement, um, for both for good or ill, I think tells a complete story, or at least a very uh, uh, a very true story of what all of these ideals that we have been talking about actually how they actually manifest in reality. Because as you said, there is, it's not just a contradiction that exists at the heart of, of the American Republic. I mean, it might be a fundamentally broken dichotomy between a slave society that is embarking on the genocidal conquest of North America at the same time that then somebody like uh, Alexei de Tocqueville say is going to come in a couple of decades later and look around and start talking about how oh, this is a very democratic society. This is actually a very egalitarian society, um, describing the white part of that civilization as opposed to the other parts. And Lafayette, does, Lafayette was not blind to this. Um, he understood where this line was. He was a very hopeful and idealistic and believed that ultimately what the United States was would overcome these contradictions, but he did not see it in his lifetime. And none of the people, none of his friends that he was
0: badgering for all these years uh, ever actually lifted a finger to do anything about slavery. Yeah, it does remind me a lot of the the liberal elites on the coast. Maybe the, the subtitle of your book, Mike, rather than being uh, the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution, it should be the, Mar- the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of the Failure of Revolution. Because, of course, uh, the revolution that he was also involved in in France of 1830 was I don't know whether you would call it a failure or a farce, uh, leading up to the failed revolutions of 1848. I don't think he was around then. But no, would you it be fair to say that, that, Mark, yeah, that, that Lafayette's life and his involvement in all these diff- different revolutions does reflect the profound failure of history to really change anything? That 1830 changed very little in France, didn't it? Well, I think what... You, what
1: you're getting at here is not so much that you can define things by success and failure in the sense that one event is going to do everything all at once for all time and create a cataclysmic break that will you know, g- give rise to a new peaceful and just utopia for humans to live in. Um, that has never been, in my experience, the way that history actually progresses. And you there's yeah, a huge, but, but eighteen thirty <laughs> was a particularly
0: yeah there moment, not only in French history but in world history.
1: Yeah, no, and so I think his participation in the American Revolution, then the French Revolution, because the French Revolution, for all its retrograde um after effects and the backlash that happens, you know, it, it obviously moves into the Napoleonic Empire, and then you get the Bourbon regime coming back, and you could say, well, by 1815, what had really changed the bourbons are back uh the revolution is over uh the whole thing was a big failure but if you walked around france in 1815 and 1816 compared to what france was like and the world was like in the 1780s uh in terms of even the psychology of the peasants uh in terms of the distribution of wealth inside the society yes of course all of those hierarchies were in place but things had changed okay so now you go to 1830 and of course 1830 is yes Swapping out one bourbon with another, but in 1829 and 1830, Charles X, who was originally the Comte d'Artois, literally the very first emigre from the French Revolution of 1789, was, I think, in many ways trying to complete the true reactionary um, uh, leveling of the French Revolution. Right, he wanted to erase the last vestiges of the revolution. And I do think that the French Revolution of 1830, for however reactionary Louis Philippe winds up becoming down the road, and Lafayette's very critical of that, I do think is a check on that and allows these things that I do think um, uh, are not inconsequential results of this period uh, legislatures, voting rights constitutions declarations of you know freedom of the press freedom of speech freedom of religion these things do exist and do come out of this period it is is it herky-jerky are there forward and backwards motions is it dialectical yes it's all of those things
0: yeah and if we had time mike we could get on to 1848 and the ghost of napoleon louis napoleon marx's wonderful essay on that but we we won't go there finally uh mike you made your name as a historian of Rome. You, you wrote a best-selling book, The Storm Before the Storm, the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic. Um, we, we've done a, a lot of shows on um, disruption in Rome. We had the, uh, the historian of antiquity, David Potter, on the show, a really interesting new book, Disruption, Why Things Change. Um, uh, we also had... Um, Uh, Edward Watts on the show warning us about how Rome and the fall of Rome has become a kind of metaphor for misunderstanding history. How did your um, Storm Before the Storm and your deep knowledge of Rome, how did that help you write the book on Lafayette? Are there connections between the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire uh, and perhaps uh, the Lafayette age, or perhaps connections between the beginning and the end of the beginning of the end of the Roman empire. And today the beginning of the end of the American empire of American democracy. Well, I think that,
1: you know, on, on, on a very basic level, uh, the fact that I spent so many years steeping myself in Roman history and the classics and reading Plutarch and Polybius and Livy and all of those people, um, when you get to talking about the French Revolution, you are talking about a group of people who were absolutely steeped in that same material. And one of the things that helps explain possibly uh, why the French Revolution happened when it did is because there were a, there was an expanding uh, world of education that was happening where the curriculum was heavily steeped in those uh, classical Greek and Roman texts that were teaching the virtues of Republican antiquity, and so there are, the, there are great quotes from Camille Desmoulins, uh, from Louis Sebastian Mercier, talking about how you know they were in school and they're reading Livy and they're reading about you know the great heroes of the Roman Republic or Athenian democracy, and then they're emerging that you know they leave the classroom or they leave their study and they're in this um, you know they're, they're in this world of, uh, of feudal absolutism. The incongruity in their heads uh, was uh, uh, was quite shocking. Uh, in their minds, and I think that this is what feeds into the revolution, and this is Lafayette is steeped in all of these things. So, uh, uh, yeah, In a
0: funny way, it just occurred to me. In in a, in a funny way, perhaps you're you're presenting Lafayette in your work and in this conversation as a hero of antiquity. I have uh, read so much Plutarch <laughs> in my life and
1: Livy in my life uh, that I can never. I would never say that like the influence of them and the way that they presented history and the way that they talked about things doesn't have sort of a, at least a deeply subconscious impact on the way that I write. Um, the interesting thing about Lafayette is that while all of his sort of classmates uh, made a, made a great, uh, they wanted to be Brutus, they wanted to be Cicero, they wanted to oppose Caesar. Um, Lafayette was actually really super into Vercingetorix, who was the Gallic leader who opposed uh, the Gallic Wars who opposed Caesar in the Gallic invasion. Lafayette is actually Asterisk, from o- uh, so, something like that. Was he like Asterix? Yeah, he was exactly, I mean, he was Asterix, uh, Vercingetorix, uh, Vercingetorix's daughter shows up in some Asterix and Obelix because obviously Asterix takes place after the defeat of Vercingetorix. Um, but Lafayette grew up in Auvergne, and the Auverni is what is the tribe that produced, um, in uh, general, so even from this very young age, like Lafayette has this uh this view of himself as somebody who's going to be standing up to the encroaching tyranny of some uh, of some other power, so all of these things do like mesh in my head i I work so much in Roman history and I work so much in sort of yeah. French political history, which is very true of all the French politicians that I've been writing about
0: Mike, do you think you are a a, a living argument against professional history you live in in wisconsin but you have nothing to do with the university you've written this amazing book about rome the storm before the storm now you have this amazing book about lafayette we have all these academic historians who write garbage about stuff that nobody is interested in it's over specialized what's gone wrong with the historical profession and why are you um, a a model perhaps for a, a 21st century historian someone who Makes a living writing, podcasting, doing shows like this. Well, I think you just have to understand that
1: there are different roles being played by different people. Um, my role,
0: my be be, be, no, be a not, no. I mean, I'm,
1: and I mean this honestly. Like, my role is to I, I am a popularizer of history. Right, I am a popular historian. I I am something of a popular educator, in the sense that I want to take all of this information that, as you said nobody wants to read or is boring to be. It's very interesting to me. And it's very interesting to a lot of people. And I am able to take that and I hope synthesize it in such a way that I'm able to do something which I think is quite valuable in that I think that societies are better functioning and uh, and more fulfilling for all of us if we have an understanding of our historical roots, where we came from having something like a historical... Uh, living in at least in a historical timeline, even if you don't remember all the facts, right. it's really great to not think that the world began when you were born, right? I think that's a, that's a dangerous place. Uh, and it gives us,
0: uh, as we started this show, it gives us some sort of perspective on our supposed age of revolution or chaos or disruption or whatever you want to describe it as. You're, you're, you're enormously valuable, Mike. I have, to, uh, I have to congratulate you for this new book, Hero of Two Worlds, a result of two or three years living in Paris. Erudite, articulate, relevant. Um, it's, it's a thrilling book. I'm sure it's going to win lots of awards and be another bestseller. So congratulations on that. Uh, I know you're talking to me from, uh, from uh, Wisconsin now. Uh, what else should people be reading apart from your book on, uh, on Lafayette? Oh, okay. So you know, we we talked. We've we have talked
1: about having some kind of historical perspective and and on using it to uh, sort of place yourself in context. And there is a book that I read. I finally got to it. Like I I wish that this book had been written when I did the history of Rome. uh, But it's a recent book called "The Fate of Rome" by a guy called. Let me get it right. It's Kyle Harper, right? So I don't know if you know this book or if you've had. No, I don't know. I have
0: to get him on the show.
1: Yeah, you really, you really, really should, because. What he does in this book is take the Roman Empire away from people like me who are mere political historians or mere economic historians or mere social historians and takes all of Roman society and situates it inside the natural world within which we actually exist. Right. It comes to like the North Atlantic oscillations and El Nino events and climate shifts that affect where you can grow things and how that affects climate migrations, how pathogens Uh, transmit through trade routes because Rome was obviously like the world has always been pretty globalized and Rome was plugged into trade routes that went all the way to China. So he takes sort of a a very long scale view over centuries, Mm. uh, taking the Roman empire from its height to its fall, quote unquote, fall um, transition into late antiquity, telling this story set against a dynamic natural world, a dynamic geographic environment, as opposed to just a static world that we've sort of always treated the mountains and the hills and the rivers as something that's very static, where all of the agency in history is captured by human beings. And so I think that as we move forward into the future, as we're looking at fires, we're looking at hurricanes, we're looking at climate change, the more that we as a society can recognize that we live inside of a dynamic, changing, and possibly hostile natural world, Uh, the better off we will be when it comes to how are we actually going to respond to these crises.
0: Yeah, I actually think that uh, Ed Watts, from what I remember, I think he recommended the same book. Uh, We'll have to get Harper on the show. Uh, Do you know him, Mike? I do not. Okay. Well, you should get him I on the him
1: a, I should write him an email because I, I plan on my next book uh, is going to be about a specific su- subset of Roman history, I, I hope, uh, that is actually covered by his book. And I would hope to be operating in his legacy because I think he offered a very valuable contribution. And I think that uh, basically all social sciences and history, I think, is about to take a turn towards understanding that biology, climate, geography are incredibly important in the way that we had a social turn and we had it introduced an economic turn and there was, and there was a political turn. I think that we are moving towards a geographic
0: and climate turn. Like, and why could that possibly be? And I, I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know how epi, to say that word. Epi, epi, demi, ep, uh, uh, well, uh, a, a pandemic approach as well in terms of the vaccine and COVID. Well, Mike Duncan, I could talk all afternoon, but I am afraid we have to end now. Real pleasure having you on the show. I hope, um, I hope it won't be uh, too long before you reappear on the show. Don't wait until your your new book on uh, your your second book on Rome. You'll have to come on and we'll talk more about revolutions. We haven't even talked about the Russian Revolution of 1917 yet. So congratulations on this new book, uh, Hero of Two Worlds, about um, about the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. Keep well. Keep writing. Keep thinking. Keep disrupting the traditional uh, business of history because I think we need you. Thanks again. Thank you very much for having me.